Welcome to the Libro Europe podcast, European Libro Forum project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And today I'm very happy to have on the podcast Nathan Stone. Nathan is an Irishman currently working at the European Parliament for the Renew Europe grouping. And it is important to say right from the beginning, he speaks to us today in a strictly personal capacity. He is a graduate of the University of Oxford and Leiden, and he has a keen interest in Irish and European history and politics, and relishes the opportunity to bring Irish affairs to a broader European audience. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about Ireland, the effects of Brexit, internal politics, and the future of this country at the European Union project. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of December. I'm here with Nathan Stone. Nathan, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you, Ricardo. It's a great privilege to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here and to talk about something that I was trying to for some time, having a little bit of a perspective of people that are from countries in the European Union that can tell us how the project of building a union is going. I met Nathan in Brussels. Uh, he's Irish, as you can see by his accent, which I'm very, very jealous of. But we'll get on that later on. Throw it to you right now. Tell us a little bit about you to our audience, the road you took to finally have you here on the podcast. I guess I'm in many ways a bit of a blow-in to Europe in that I, I moved to Singapore when I was nine years old, did all of my secondary uh, high school education there. So I very much kind of bring, I suppose, fresh eyes to Europe in that I spent a lot of my formative years outside of Europe. Although in a country that's also in another transnational union in, in ASEAN, which is, a, which is a fun kind of comparison to make. But I moved back to Europe, if you can call it that. I moved to the UK for do my, uh, do my undergrad degree in Oxford. I did that in history and politics. And after that, I moved uh, to Leiden uh, for my, my master's degree and ended up uh, working here on IMCO, the Internal Market Committee, uh, as, a, as a stagiaire with uh, the Renew Group. So I've been here now for ooh, uh, just over a month here in Brussels and, and loving it so far. So it gives you a perspective of, like you said, living outside the European Union. Yeah, and, and I mean, the three years I spent even in the UK were, you know, three particularly spicy years. Um, you know, I, I moved there in 2016, just after the referendum. And, you know, I think Ireland has never been in British news quite as much as it was <laughs> over that years with regard to uh, the Brexit negotiations and kind of the cultural uh, and political chats that were going on were very enlightening. Um, you know, there's a reason why I didn't... Uh, a particular desire to remain in the UK after those three years. So yeah, it's been it's been an interesting uh, route in that sense, in terms of how my view on Europe and the necessity of the European Union has very much been shaped by that by that personal experience for sure. Well, it is quite unfair for you to have you on the podcast and try to get from you a perspective of the entire. Irish population. <laughs> I don't know if you are entitled to speak for all the Republic of Ireland. You never claim to do so. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always good to have a personal perspective, how things flow from the Republic of Ireland and then the center of power in Brussels. But let's talk about that. And it's funny that you were saying that your path took you to many places. The same parallel can be made in a way for Republic of Ireland, which is the country's journey in the European integration. Tell us about that. When Ireland achieved independence, so to say, you know, this would be controversial in itself to call it that, of course, being Ireland, uh, in 1922, you have to remember that Ireland had been in the British Empire with a specific economic role. 
its role was as a food producer for uh, the metropole, for, mm-hmm. for Britain itself. So it was effectively slim to none uh, in the way of industrial production, industrial capacity in the territory of, of the Republic of Ireland. Uh, really, very, very little. It was a, it was a highly agricultural uh, economy uh, and highly dependent on the UK market uh, as a customer. So it was a, an extremely uncompetitive economy and also had a very protectionist uh, economic outlook uh, for the first, I suppose, three decades or so, four decades uh, of its existence. Uh, that really began to change into the late 50s, early 60s, uh, under a Taoiseach, which is what we call our, our prime minister, uh, called Sean Lamas. Uh, he, had a, he was a real economic modernizer, uh, and he set a clear goal of joining uh, what was then, of course, the EEC, uh, and, and trying to get the economy up to scratch that it could do so. Uh, so it was a huge modernization, industrialization process, where we had to kind of have industrial revolution almost overnight uh, just to catch up. And this was, I mean, one of the reasons why our application was not uh, received uh, in the best of light, uh, but the most important uh, factor was actually that the UK was trying to join as well. And the, with de Gaulle's uh, successive uh, vetoes of particularly British membership, at the time there would have been no question of, uh, of Ireland joining without the UK. The economic friction would have simply been, would have been too much. It, it would not have been remotely feasible. So when the British were rejected, that was de facto a rejection of, of Ireland as well. So it was only when uh, Georges Pompidou became president of France later on that it became feasible. And, and so we eventually joined along with uh, the British and the Danes. I think we joined the 1st of January 1973. And that was following a referendum in which 83% of, uh, of people voted uh, to join. So it was, it was by far a consensus position, and it really has remained so. Uh, you know, the European movement in Ireland do a, a poll every year on attitudes to the EU. And uh, the most recent one, 2021, found 84% in favour of Remain. So it is pretty much almost exactly the same uh, level of consensus now as it was back then, which is an interesting, I guess, uh, comment in itself. Indeed. And we do see, Nathan, that across um, most of the member states, high 80s, some of them are in the 90s, which is the perception of the population of uh, the feeling of being part of this. So, you know, we were, sorry, just kind of cross you there, we were up into the mid-90s uh, during Brexit, during the negotiations. There, there, was a, there, there was a big jump because there was, I guess, the most a clearly expressed solidarity of the European Union towards Ireland in that process. So uh, yeah, in 2019, it was 93% uh, in favour of staying, which now dropped down to 84, but it's still, you know, th- this is a, a landslide result. What's also, I think, interesting about Ireland is that I think there's a trend in a lot of countries where age is a pretty good predictor for skepticism of the EU, in, in that the older people tend to be the most Eurosceptic demographic in a lot of countries. In, in Ireland, it's actually kind of a V-shaped, a very shallow V-shaped graph in that the very young and the very old are highly supportive. And there's a gap in that kind of middle age, uh, that kind of 45 to 54 bracket. Uh, it, it tends to be the lowest one in terms of support for the EU. And these are the people that don't remember being outside of it. So uh, older people who can remember the pre-1972 world are actually the most pro-EU demographic in Ireland. <laughs> That's the, the level of transformation on both a cultural, social, and of course, principally economic mm-hmm. uh, level that, that EU membership has brought to Ireland. It, it has been, it, it's a different country, really. So would you agree with the analysis that these are positive indicators, particularly the fact that younger generations feel more and more 
that connection with European projects. Will, will that be fair assessment or do you think there's, there are like deeper rooted problems and that, for example, that statistics could be a little bit over simplifying the, the, the tendencies? What, what is your take on that? There is a risk of oversimplification there. I mean, particularly if you break into deeper questions than simply would you vote to leave or remain. It's tempting uh, to mm -hmm. look at the, the basic numbers on would you leave or remain and take that as, uh, well, great. Uh, you know, we have consensus, particularly among young and very old people. Uh, we want to stay in. But if you look deeper down into the particular questions about specific policy areas, you'll find that there's a lot broader skepticism, particularly on things like defense union and among older people, uh, certain social issues too. Uh, I reared its head, certainly, and I'm sure we'll get on to talking about the referendums on, on, on Nice and Lisbon, which the Irish people rejected uh, initially before there were some concessions made. And I think we'll find as well that, you know, that there can be a certain degree of navel-gazing uh, and self-congratulation when we look at, oh, well, the, the people here are so pro-Europe. But are they really pro-Europe or are they pro a certain idea of Europe that doesn't necessarily fit what we in the liberal family would hope and dream that it could be? This fantastic point, and that is, I imagine that historically, ideas like federalism will develop resistance in the Republic of Ireland. People will look at that suspiciously. But let's pick up on what you just said now, 30 seconds ago, which was really interesting. But do you think that there is room for more integration? From an Irish point of view, I, I would say that people would be certainly very skeptical of a few of these movements. If you look at When we rejected the Lisbon and Nice treaties, if you look at the polling after those referendums on why did you vote no, you know, you see a lot of stuff like um, loss of Irish identity comes up as one of the higher ones. Uh, you even get specific things like the loss of a veto, which was, all, which was a risk that was threatened by the, by the notes that we'd lose our veto and we'd just be, run, we'd be ridden roughshod over by the Germans and the French. You know, I, I think that um, there's certainly a lot of people within a lot more convincing <laughs> in Ireland, put it that way. And I think that... Um, consent uh, to uh, certain projects would be more forthcoming than in others. But I think more broadly, I, I, I think that we would be a deeply skeptical member state when it comes to a lot of the real big federal ideas, I would suggest. Interesting. Let's see if there is a generational uh, shift with that also, which uh, you will tell us in the future if that is uh, possible or not, or if the younger generations will still want to keep that Irish identity and not... Uh... Well, yeah, I, I think... Go ahead. The reality is that Ireland's identity is very much... Uh, it's forged as much... It is an anti-colonial... <laughs> and rightfully so. Right, it was formed in resistance to British imperialism. And therefore, mm. a lot of the national mythology surrounds this idea, you know, of, um, of armed resistance and so forth. So I think that there is, I guess, an instinctive jealousy with which Irish would guard their sovereignty. Uh, and and that, is, that, that was one of the big um, ways in which the bailout was framed as such a sort of humiliation, uh, mm -hmm. was that we were giving back our, our hard-won sovereignty to, the, to this troika of you know, the EU, the IMF, and the World Bank. So it's often framed in those ways. So I, I think that um, certainly people would identify very strongly as Irish, and then European, but in a much vaguer Uh, looser way. Obviously, the, the, the nationality is far more crystallized. Well, it could be an entry point. We, we are all our own countries, but 
at the second level, maybe a close level, we, we can all be Europeans. And, and Nathan, you're talking to a Portuguese. So the uh, humiliation of losing sovereignty because of bailouts, we Portuguese people <laughs> have a lot of experience yeah, well, on I that. think this is interesting one as well, that Ireland is in many ways both a northern and a southern country in, in some of these ways, that a lot of um, the issues are kind of shared hmm. across that way. But even in terms of, uh, as you say, an opening, you know, the family document, I guess the, the document that set off uh, the struggle towards Irish independence in the in the early part of the 20th century, the proclamation of the Republic, does uh, contain a specific reference to gallant allies in Europe, which which is the quote. That is, you know, it's looking back historically. To, we, we had a lot of um, the French having to whip up a bit of mischief in Ireland when it, when it suited them, uh, and later on the Germans. Uh, you know, it was the Kaiser was the, was the particular reference there. So I think, yeah, even within the national mythology, there, there is certainly a, a European dynamic to it, Spain or France or or, or anyone else. Uh, but certainly, I think it will be certainly very secondary to um, mm -hmm. to the national feeling. I, I can't see that changing really anytime soon, unfortunately. I don't have titles on our podcast, but if this one would have one, would be Ireland is at the same time a northern and a southern country in the European Union. That was a great sentence from you. I really like that one. And, and some people even in the East see a lot of similarities, you know, and, and not just through potatoes, you know, with the Poles and the Lithuanian people. We were, a, a lot of that shared uh, sense of being a small country next to a very big neighbor, which is certainly a lot of the Baltic states, uh, you know, Poland and a few of these guys can certainly relate to. Uh, so there, there is certainly a commonality there, I think, with Ireland's geography puts it in a place that you maybe wouldn't necessarily expect it to be in terms of that, uh, those sorts of cultural feelings of resonance. Very good. Let's go to a point now that I really wanted to have your opinion on. And you just said that you were actually in England while Brexit was happening. Mm -hmm. Give us a perspective from Ireland. How was that taken and how is Ireland doing dealing with this? Because there's a direct and a very sensitive connection with this kind of breaking up. So tell us uh, where, where, where are we on that? Yes, so the immediate fear and, and concern was with regard to the north, uh, to Northern Ireland, uh, which is an extremely divided society even today, uh, perhaps even particularly so. It, it, it's only had 20, uh, 20 or so, I guess 23 now years of relative uh, peace and stability. And I do say relative uh, quite liberally. There are still huge issues with regard to paramilitary activities. Uh, a huge majority actually of uh, attempted terror attacks uh, within Europe actually still happen on within Northern Ireland. Uh, it, it's they're, they're all very low, relatively low level attacks, but and they don't make all the headlines. But there's a huge amount still of of that stuff going on. Unfortunately, one of the key ingredients that have made that peace possible, when rel relative peace possible, has been the sort of erasure of any physical sign of there being a border, uh, which was only made possible through the Single European Act, uh, which permitted the, the removal of customs posts uh, on, on the border. Because in, in reality, there is no way you can properly police that border. You know, there are more crossings between Ireland and Northern Ireland than there are on the entire eastern border of the European Union. It, it really is. There are so many little, uh, you know, small roads in and out you know, the British couldn't properly enforce it when they had 3,000 troops in Northern Ireland. How they're proposing to, uh, to police it now. So that was certainly Ireland's number one fear. Uh, a return to physical infrastructure on the border would have meant a return. It's, it's hard to see it not causing much deeper problems. 
because the removal of it permits a kind of constructive ambiguity with regard to identity in Northern Ireland. You know, that if your identity as an, as an Irish nationalist, say, requires you not to see a border, then great, you, can't, you, can, you can avoid seeing it. All you, would, you notice when you cross is that the road signs change from kilometers per hour uh, in the public to uh, miles per hour uh, in the north. So that's really it. I think that uh, a lot of uh, British policymakers didn't really appreciate this when they were um, when they were advocating Brexit. But but here here we are. What else is new? Mm-hmm. The second yeah. uh, concern, which is obviously very secondary after Northern Ireland, was the economic one. I mentioned earlier that w- before Ireland joined the EU, it was extremely dependent on the British market um, economically. Uh, that is certainly much less the case uh, these days. EU membership has been transformative in this way. Uh, so now in terms of countries, the UK is actually only our third largest trading partner uh, at the moment, after the US and actually Belgium are second. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that, that is certainly, uh, and I think that will only continue to go down after Brexit. But there was that economic fear as well, certainly, uh, which also is a factor of geography. Uh, you know, that you had Irish truckers were using the what we call the land bridge you know that they would get a short ferry from ireland to to britain then drive then go from britain to france that's required a lot of really inventive and really good work actually to create much uh much needed new ferry routes uh between ireland and and mainland europe uh which have thankfully mitigated a lot of that but i guess those would have been our two number one concerns (laughs) that our two that's not really a possible thing is it Uh, our two main concerns uh would have been the the border and and the trade side, both of which thankfully have been uh, very well mitigated uh, so far. I guess the Northern Ireland question rearing its head again at time of recording, so hopefully that remains the case. Let me add a third dimension, and that is more of a diplomatic one. Um, So across the Irish Sea, Ireland will have to deal with United Kingdom or whatever becomes of the United Kingdom, each, each thing at its own time. Yeah, but that's a whole different, uh, whole different question. <laughs> yes, and maybe a future podcast that I'll I'll invite you uh, to come back in. But that sensitive issue, because we do follow the questions between the Republic of Ireland and United Kingdom, particularly the the, the power in in Westminster, and we do, do we do see some tensions sometimes, and and people trying to alleviate things and having a good relationship. What do you see in the future for this uh, very um, sensitive issue? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there are strong bilateral... It's first important to the good things, I think, first, right, is that there are very strong bilateral ties between Ireland and the UK. That's a fact of geography, and it's mm-hmm. never going to change, right? You know, there are institutes in place to the dialogue, like you've got the British and Irish Intergovernmental Council, and a lot of north-south and east-west institutions that were brought in under the successive agreements, uh, notably the Good Friday Agreement and before that the Anglo-Irish Agreement in the 1980s. Uh, but I think the reality is that there has been a real shift change uh, since the end of David Cameron's time in office, which obviously do- dovetails very well uh, with Brexit, inevitably. Uh, you know, David Cameron famously uh, made an apology in the House of Commons for Bloody Sunday, which, if your listeners aren't aware, uh, was an action taken in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland by the British Army in the 1970s, which resulted in the deaths of 14 
completely innocent, completely peaceful protesters, which for years was a real sore point. And of course, you know, before that, within the 2010s, we had reciprocal visits between the uh, the Queen of uh, the UK and uh, the President of Ireland, state visits back and forth. That would have been totally unthinkable um, kind of when my parents were were in their prime. You know, th- th- this was... Uh, this was a huge, really big historic deal. And unfortunately, Brexit really has knocked relations back. Uh, in terms of how we fix it, I think that, you know, of course, I am, I've got a certain bias and a certain view here. The British government need to stop playing this sort of political football where they're trying to reopen the Northern Ireland Protocol every five minutes uh, and asking for new changes, what they've already agreed. You know, the, there is, I think the EU has shown good faith in looking for practical solutions, which is the, the most recent offer by um, Vice President uh, Sefcovic, uh, which the British government are dismissing out of hand because they've totally invented new red lines. I think that there is a need really for some proper grown-ups to come into the room in Westminster and really sit down and think about this. Because I, I, I don't know what Ireland can do much differently, to be honest with you. Of course, we are all responsible to keep our tone in check, which, I mean, I think there have been one or two wobbles on the Irish side as well over the last few years of people's emotions getting the better of them. Um, but I think that it has been in response to a really systematic shift change by the, on the British side, which I think needs to be fixed before we can have any real chance of getting back to where we all want to be, where we were before, frankly. Nadim, this has been fascinating. I could talk about this for hours, but um, our time is limited today. And I still want to ask you one thing, and that is now looking inwards in the Republic of Ireland, there was COVID, there's you know, the government, the, the, the dealing exactly, as you said, with this uh, cultural and ger- generational shifts. What do you think on a long-term could be some of the major challenges for Ireland in a structural level. And also because you, as you just said, you have an opinion, you are a liberal, you work with Renew Europe. So tell us what will be on your wish list for Ireland in the next uh, 10 years. Well, so the, the, the party system in Ireland really has been uh, in flux. Uh, there was a major reset following 2011 uh, general election in which Fianna Fáil, which is uh, you know, a great party name, by the way, it means the soldiers of destiny, have been the major uh, party in Ireland uh, for really the, the previous 80 years or so, uh, had, be, had come first in every election since 1932, although not always in government, uh, but had been the largest party, uh, suffered an absolutely historic uh, defeat uh, and, and a humbling. And since then, we have seen uh, the rise of uh, Sinn Féin, which are a uh, an extreme nationalist, economically very populist uh, party, uh, with, of course, extremely unsavory links, and in fact, more than links in many cases, uh, to terrorism. Um, but they are really riding high in the polls at the moment. Uh, they are the largest party, uh, not by much, but they're the largest party in the, in the Dáil at the moment, uh, and, and likely will be, by some distance, the first party uh, after the next general election. And this I see as a really, really terrible um, problem for Ireland in, in years to come, uh, both in terms of their economic agenda, which is, of course, you know, something for the fairies. But I think that that would be more manageable in that populist governments come and go all the time. But the reputation that they would do internationally, I think, is really, really scary for me. Uh, like You want to talk about... <laughs> how we can fix relations with the UK. Well, you know, how about don't have murderers in government would be, you know, 
a, a good first step. <laughs> um, that, that's a great even point. Beyond that, you know, they are a very Eurosceptic party. So I would really fear for our place in Europe, uh, if not in in terms of actual membership, but in terms of our standing. You know, they were they opposed every single European treaty all the way through, right? They they are real true blue Eurosceptics mm-hmm. or true green in this case. Um, and only opposed Brexit, really, because the DUP were against, were, were for it. <laughs> um, there, wasn't, there is no real commitment mm-hmm. there to the European project, and much less to, uh, to any idea of common defense. Uh, their youth wing sent a delegation to Maduro's inauguration in Venezuela, which will show you again what it will do for our links with the US and other countries. Uh, so yeah, that would be my big fear. Um, but, they, but they are unfortunately hijacking legitimate uh, discontent with particularly the housing market in Ireland, which has systematically mm-hmm. you know, been unfair towards young people for a long time now. So the, you know, the, there are legitimate reasons why people are going to them, but they are just not the solution. So my wish list would be for the, the centrist parties, which I include Fianna Fáil, which is the member of, uh, of Renew in Ireland. So I'm not a part of her, I should say that. For, they are currently leading the government um, in coalition with Fine Gael, mm-hmm. their historic rivals. They need to really do some substantial fixing um, on the housing crisis. I don't know how they will do that, uh, but if we're to have any chance, uh, that really has to happen, because I think that the damage that Sinn Féin could do to this country, or to, uh, in terms of both uh, internally and externally, really could be incalculable. Um, so this would be my number one wish, uh, is for the issues to be fixed in order that we can have the breathing space uh, to interact on a longer-term level with Europe and with the UK on a much more constructive level. Well, Nathan, you did a great job in raising our conscience on this particular, let's not call it danger because it is democracy, but at this concern that Ireland can take a turn to a more populist approach and a more Eurosceptic and yeah. more of a resistance. I think people are just perhaps, they do lack an awareness of what Sinn Féin really are. Um, they are not a, they're not a nice left-wing party like they seem to want to um, for as. They really have got a, a very dangerous underbelly to them, which they don't even like. I think they're the only major party that I know of, you know, in a European Union member state that don't recognize the state. <laughs> right. like, like they explicitly do not recognize uh, mm. the constitution or yep. the state. They believe in their makey-uppy dream, United Ireland. That's going to be wonderful for them, and you know, it, it, it's nonsense. Um, so I think that this is the really the big fear, mm-hmm. and I think people need to be more aware of it because it is a danger. I think you're right to call it a danger, even though it is democracy. Very good. So tell our listeners how can they know more about this. Well, I mean, there are plenty of resources online. Uh, the European Movement Ireland uh, are always worth a follow. They do some fantastic work in terms of um, publications on you know, really in-depth stuff on Ireland's attitude to Europe, where Europe is going. So I definitely follow them uh, for sure. And if you can get involved, certainly do get involved. You know, uh, a country like Ireland always needs friends. Very good. And how can people follow you? Well, I'm online? on Twitter at Mr. At Mr. Nathan Stone. Uh, if you want to follow me for some, uh, you know, uh, if you like my takes or even if you don't like them. Uh, yeah, come along. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put all this on the show notes. I've been talking with Nathan Stone. This was very, very illuminating and it was a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast, Nathan. Thanks for having me, Ricardo. It was great fun. (laughs) 
I'm back. Just a reminder that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. Enough for some of the events organized by ELF for this week of December. On the 6th of December, starting at 5 p.m. Eastern Central Time from Sofia, and this is Hotel Balkan. But in an hybrid format, we have the event Sofia Forum for the Western Balkans, Time to Rebuild Trust. This will be an opportunity to bring together head of state, decision makers, politicians, along with civil society organizations and journalists, for an opportunity to hear the participants' perspective on the further development of the accession process. Moving now to the 9th of December, also starting at 5 p.m. Central Eastern Time, from the Officina Grande Reparazione Sale Mazzanino, we have the event Liberal White Book Roadshow, 5G Technologies in Europe, How to Seize the Opportunities and Avoid the Risks of an Incoming Revolution. This event of the Centro Inaudi and the European Liberal Forum intends to discuss how to seize the opportunities and avoid risks associated with the commercial development of the fifth-generation mobile networks. And then on the 10th of December, starting at 3 p.m., also Central Eastern Time, from the Western Excelsior Via Vittorino Veneto 125, this is in Rome, Italy, we have the first-ever Liberal Awards to celebrate the successes of European Liberal heroes, and the awards go for Rising Star, Value Champion, Best Speech, and Outstanding Changemaker. I must add here on a personal note that I suggested four names for each category. I'm not going to say who they were, of course, but I hope they win. To know more about this event and all the events organized by the European Liberal Forum, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast. It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>